listening to Rising Above with Becky Davidson. Even when I was in a space of despondency, bitterness, God, where are you? You haven't been with me. In hindsight, you know, 20 years later, it's like, he never left me. Welcome to Rising Above with Becky Davidson, where we hear from special needs families who rise above difficult circumstances and discover that joy can be found in every story. Thank you for joining us. Here's your host, Becky Davidson. Hey friends, I am so glad that you are joining us for this week's episode. You know, it is so hard to believe that we are already in the month of October. This year is just flying by and it's going to be 2024 before we know it. But with it being a new month, that means that we have new family downloads available that go along with our theme this year at Rising Above of Anchored. And you can find them on the Rising Above app or website. So be sure to go check them out. I know that they will be an encouragement to your family. My guest today is Stephanie C. Holmes, and she is an author and a speaker and a certified autism specialist. And when her daughter Sydney was diagnosed with autism, her world and focus changed from a thriving marriage and family therapy practice to a world of IEP meetings, 504 plans, and understanding how to help students and individuals with challenges and needs in the classroom and the church setting. Today, she pulls from personal as well as professional experiences to focus on neurodiverse marriages and family systems. She is the owner and founder of Autism Spectrum Resources for Marriage and Family, and she and her husband, Dan, co-founded the International Association of Neurodiverse Christian Marriages, and they host the podcast, Neurodiverse Christian Couples. I learned a lot from our conversation, and I know you will be encouraged by what she has to share in this episode. Hey, Stephanie, thanks so much for being on the show today. I am so happy to meet you and for us to finally have our show together. I know. It took us a little bit to get here, but we we finally were able to find a date that worked and, and got here. And so I am excited to get to know more about you and your work. Uh, and so I'm, I just appreciate you taking the time to be with us. So for the people who are new to you, just give us a brief introduction about you and your family and where you live. Okay, so um, my name is Stephanie. I live in the metro Atlanta area, but I am a native Charlottean, so I'm a Carolina girl. Um, we moved down actually to Atlanta. One of the main reasons was because um, my daughter, who was um, then in elementary school at the time, is on the autism spectrum. We were not having good results in the public school system where we were in North Carolina, and I did my research and found an area in metro Atlanta that I thought could um, better help and serve her. So we made the move partially um, for that. And so that's kind of how we landed here. Um, both of my girls are adults now, um, but my oldest is um, on the autism spectrum, previously diagnosed Asperger's. And my youngest is also neurodivergent, um, ADHD with some um, different learning issues. And so we've been, um, I called our, called us the therapy family. There was a time, like, I'm a therapist. I was doing therapy. And every day, one of my kids had therapy. So um, <laughs> that's kind of the highlight of kind of who we are. Yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned briefly about your your daughter, Sydney, being diagnosed with autism. I think it was in 2004. And so what was that like for you as a mom, you know, in those early days? What was that like for you to start noticing maybe things are looking a little different here? And how did you go about getting a diagnosis for her? I think our story might be a little bit different because... Um, by training, I'm licensed. I was a licensed professional counselor at the time, 
And so the DSM-4 had just come out in the 1990s with Asperger syndrome in it. And, you know, I was told in class, it was like one out of 10,000. I would never see anyone, you know, who had Asperger's. It was a new thing and it was a questionable thing. And it was kind of like autism, light, and um, don't worry about it. You don't really know too much about it. You just, you know, need to know about it. You're never going to meet anybody. So it kind of tucked away in my head, you know, because I was trained on the DSM-4. And when I started seeing different behaviors with my daughter at first, you know, I'm going clinical OCD, you know, the arranging, lining things up, doing things mm-hmm. in a certain way. I'm like, oh, this is, you know, classic OCD behavior. But then she had these sensory issues that I, I didn't really understand. Like things just bothered her. I just thought, why is this kid so complaining and just so negative? Mm-hmm. And so then her first diagnosis was actually sensory I think it was called sensory processing disorder back then. Right. Yeah. That's same. So she got that and I was like, okay, well, let's do all this stuff. We'll do what the OT tells us and the PT. And, you know, it seemed like manageable, but that plus this OCD plus then focus. And then she started having a lot of trouble at school. And I was like, besides these six diagnoses that she now has, maybe is there something else that better describes Mm her, um, experience. And so that nagging little thing in my head said, you know, that Asperger thing that you were never supposed Mm. to come into contact with that kind of started it. And it was really hard her being a girl to really get Mm. professionals to take it seriously. So while it was kind of shocking and difficult to process, I found myself advocating for the diagnosis. Um, And then even when it came, dealing with all the emotions that once someone else said it out of their mouth, then I had to do the processing, even though I thought that's what it was, you know, for many years. Yeah. All along, you kind of had that idea that maybe this is it, but that there's something though about actually someone saying those words Mm -hmm. that it becomes so much more real. So how did you respond? You know, think, go back to that day when you, you get that diagnosis. And even though you probably had some sort of an idea that, okay, this is a real possibility. How did that impact you on the like the day of actually hearing that news? It's interesting you asked that question because I was just reading the chapter in my book um, about diagnosis day. Mm. And I was reflecting that and then it was kind of coming back to mind. I can see myself sitting there in that office. And the first was like a sigh of relief because I'm not crazy. Mm. Like for two years, I had been right. saying, I think this this Asperger right. thing. She's not a bad kid. She's a sweet mm-hmm. kid. You know, and so at first it was like oh, relief. I'm not. I'm not crazy. And yeah. then, you know, justification. I can't wait to tell those teachers. And then there mm. was, you don't know how to parent a child on the spectrum. <laughs> what? Yeah. what are you going to do about this? What does this mean? You're not mm. equipped. There was so much focus on getting the diagnosis. There wasn't much processing on what does this mean for elementary school, middle school, high mm-hmm. school, transitioning. And so it kind of just all hit like a ton of bricks that day, even though I was expecting it to happen. Mm. And, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, I can't wait to go to the teachers and say, see, this is what, this is what we, you know, what we're dealing with. What were some of the things they were seeing and reporting to you that was, you know, kind of red flags and maybe getting frustrations uh, from them and her, you know, regarding what she was dealing with? So, um, my poor Sydney (laughs) was asked to leave, um, three Christian schools, um, oh, wow. then we ha- went, we went to public school because that was our only option. When you're a three time strikeout mm-hmm. in Christian schools, you're, you're kind yeah. of blackballed. So her very first experience in public school, 
um, happened in the first week. Now, first you have to know that Sydney loves reading more than anything. So, um, but the teacher, by the time she got to public school, she had been in a Christian school all the way till March. So she's having to enter public school in March into this teacher's classroom. You know, everybody's integrated and, you know, as a teacher, I'm sure they say certain things and, you know, all the other kids know when I say this, you do this. So she had told everyone to grab their little reading square, which is a little piece of, you know, carpet, like um, grab your reading square, grab a book, find a place and read silently. Well, at, Sydney was so excited about that at first. Like I get just to just in the classroom, we can just pick a book and read. This is the best class ever. So she had her reading square, got her book and was sitting over and was whispering the, the book. And the teacher came over and said, I said, read silently. And so she kind of whispered quieter, but she still didn't understand what the teacher was saying. And the teacher said, if you, if you don't, if you don't read silently, you're going to, I'm going to take your book and you're going to have to go to, to timeout. And Cindy had no clue what that meant. She thought she like, I got my square. I got my book. I'm sitting here. I'm whispering. Like, why is this teacher on my back? And so she yanked the book from her hand and then told her to go into timeout. And Sydney refused because she didn't understand what she did wrong. And then she um, began to escalate. And on that day, just kind of all things kind of broke loose. And um, that was kind of the beginning of the undoing and really seeing like what's really going on as far as what she's understanding in social language pragmatics. And that was kind of thing for me that I knew my daughter would not disobey or do anything to get out of reading time. She loved reading time. It was her most favorite thing. Um, so I knew something had else to be going on that just that was below the surface that we weren't getting. And that's when I really started looking into the spectrum more than just OCD or the sensory processing, um, something else for someone who was that bright to not understand what her teacher was saying that's really what got me thinking in a different direction. Well, talk a little bit about how it impacted your marriage. You know, I know a lot of times moms deal with a diagnosis different than dads deal with a diagnosis. And so that can be challenging to marriages. How did it impact you and your husband and your marriage? I usually call it the tale of two marriages. Um, His Mm. marriage was going fine and my marriage was not going okay. (laughs) Um, Interesting. We had two totally different um, outlooks um, at what's going on um, because I was carrying more of the mental load. You know, I was right. the one doing the research. Um, back before there was a lot of things on the internet, you actually had to go to bookstores and libraries. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and at first when I, you know, brought it home to him and I was so, um, had all these emotions, he just kept saying things like, well, I would think that or I would do that or um that doesn't seem weird to me. Or why does mm. this have to be a label? Why do we have to use a label? You know, because you're a therapist, you're big on your diagnoses and labels, you know, why do we have to label things? And so that felt to me like a lot of pushback that didn't feel um, like he was supportive and on the same team. Um, it was really me, you know, between the two of us, you know, somebody had to sacrifice their career, which I mean, he was the primary breadwinner, but you know, it was me who had to take a, you know, a pay cut, go part-time, run to the therapies, um, fight with a IEP team, you know, do all the things that you have to do. And then, you know, at home from three to six, when you get home from school, manage, you know, everything and get dinner ready. And I was really losing myself. Um, Mm. I, 
I got to a point at some space of really being in despair, um, not seeing hope, especially as things just got worse and worse and worse at school. And, you know, asking Dan, you know, to help step in. Um, I need help. I'm drowning. And him like going to sleep and wake up and Mm -hmm. Groundhog's Day. And, you know, so everything was kind of fine for him, but there really wasn't much disruption, you know, in his life. But for me, I felt like we were growing apart. I felt Mm -hmm. alone. Um, I got to a point where I just had no joy. It was uh, numb, resentment, Mm -hmm. bitterness. Um, if there would have been a time to, to bail out of the marriage, it would have been me. It wouldn't have been him. Mm-hmm. But, um, thankfully there was a day when I told him that I, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. Like I, I really would rather be dead than continue mm, to live wow. this life. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a wake up point for him mm-hmm. that just because he was okay, didn't mean that I was okay. And then we would find out in 2019 that my husband's also on the autism spectrum. Interesting. So when he was what I thought pushing back, he was really self-identifying. Yeah. Wow. Well, how did you push through then? You know, a lot of times when there's trials and marriages, it's hard and a lot of people don't push through, but you guys chose to push through, chose to, you know, to stick it out. What were some of the things that, that you did to help bring some peace into your marriage, peace into your home? Well, I'm going to have to be honest and say it didn't start out for the best of reason. Um, I was a, I'm a Christian. I was a Christian therapist and LPC and very conservative church circles. So essentially I I knew if I get a divorce, my ministry in life is over. Mm -hmm. So it did not start altruistically and it's the best thing to do. It started with, it will be worse for me um, Mm -hmm. based on who I am in my church circles. Um, So I'm going to have to figure out a way to push through and then there was a day because because Dan just wasn't understanding and he wasn't quite on board yet. There was a day that I said, I'm going to be okay, whether my daughter's okay, whether my marriage is okay. It really had to start with me because at first mm-hmm. I was not okay. When you're in despair yeah. and you wonder if God's on your side, do I even want to do this church and Christianity thing anymore? When you're at that level of despair, um, you're not okay. So then I was like, I've got to be okay. I've got to have joy and peace in my life. I cannot mm-hmm. let what the IEP team says or this teacher says, like rock my world um, from yeah. day to week. So it really started with me being okay. And then mm-hmm. um, I call it my North Carolina marriage and my Georgia marriage. My North Carolina <laughs> marriage was not good. But when we got to Georgia and things were more stable with my daughter, I mean, she never mm-hmm. had another incident again at school. We had good IEP teams. And when that was stable, it felt like, okay, now we have more space. There wasn't therapies anymore. Um, the school wasn't calling us anymore. Mm. And things had to get a little stable before we could really focus on yeah. us. Because when again, when you're in crisis, you're just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. You're not even thinking about thriving. So we had right. to get past survival to, before we could really thrive. Mm. And aren't you glad you did? Yeah, you, know, you pushed through, and 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 so you know, as is the case so often, whenever things like these unexpected things come in our path, you know, we have a child born with a disability or special need, it changes the course of our life. You know, I used to be a teacher; that was when I what I went to school to do, and now I'm in disability ministry, which I never would have dreamed I would. You know, that that would be the course of my life. And the same for you, because of your experiences with your daughter, it changed the course of what you do as, as a career. So tell us about that and kind of what you do now. 
So originally when I was in counseling school, I kind of saw myself as, you know, I'm going to be a licensed professional counselor and do marriage and family therapy and work in the church community and help, you know, Christian marriages and families go from good to great, you know. Um, But then, you know, just going through what I went through with my daughter, there weren't resources there for her. There weren't resources there for our family. There wasn't certainly wasn't resource there for our marriage. And so when we got to Georgia, I did a little Jonah thing for a little bit and I bailed out and did something else for about three or four years. Um, but when God called me back, you know, to my original purpose and calling, I really changed my focus to um, special needs, marriage and family. And so it's within the original thing that I thought just God had a different mm-hmm. path on who I would be working with primarily. So I would say about 85% of who I work with um, are neurodivergent marriages, which that means, you know, one one or both parents is on the spectrum and or a child or somebody has is on the spectrum. And so just to throw the statistic out there, y'all, if you've got a child on the spectrum, there's an 80% chance one of you or the grandparents are. So mm-hmm. um, that's what the current statistics are showing us. Wow. Yeah. Goodness. And so you've, but you've started a whole new process of helping families and helping couples and your business is called Autism Spectrum Resources for Marriage and Family. Is that correct? That's it. That's one of them. (laughs) One of them. Okay. One of them. Okay. Uh, And so through that, you do counseling. Counseling and coaching. I'm moving from a counseling space since I'm primarily on Zoom and things are so different from state to state. Um, My lawyer has advised um, I call myself a coach yeah. and move into gotcha. coaching. So I did give up my LPC um, and some of those other credentials that come with that. And so I'm, I'm technically going by life coach who happens to have a counseling background. And I certainly can't do crisis situations that right. would not be, un- that would be unethical to do mm-hmm. on Zoom. But quarterbacking, consulting, um, if I can help uh, take your next step, what's going on with your school, let's figure out what's going on for your child, let's kind of, you know, talk about some behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, I work with people on the spectrum about 16 or 17 and older. Um, Zoom is just not a place to really do active work with kids. Yeah. And then I might do marriage stuff too. And sometimes we've had family sessions. Maybe mm-hmm. um, the child or not child, but teen wants to say something to mom or dad. I need to articulate this, you know, to my parents to help them understand what I'm thinking or feeling you know, we'll do that too. So really just anything that involves the autism spectrum and a marriage and family situation. And then specifically um, people of Christian faith, because there's a lot of resources out there for autism now, which were not there 20 Mm -hmm. years ago, but there's hardly anything that really um, in the therapeutic space to let you talk about autism, disability, suffering, faith, um, Mm -hmm. and all of that and put it together. And that's really, if you're a person of faith, you want your faith incorporated too. Absolutely, yeah. Looking for a way to honor someone special in your life? You can sponsor an episode in honor of a loved one's birthday, in memory of a dear friend, or as a shout out to someone who is loving and serving the special needs community well. Click the link in your show notes for more information on how you can sponsor Rising Above with Becky Davidson. Well, I went to your website and spent some time there and I read where you'd written, there are many antiquated ideas and notions as well as stereotypes and stigmas associated with autism. Our mission is to help identify autism, help professionals partner with members of the autism community and their families and educate educators and members of the professional community who will be supporting and working with neurodiverse individuals. And so what are some of those stereotypes and misconceptions that you have encountered and most often encounter 
when uh, working with families and schools and different people in the autism community? Well, while the movie Rain Man was um, a great movie (laughs) to introduce us all to, I mean, that was the first time I had heard the word autism in my entire life. Um, And I was a young person, you know, at the time when it came out. While that was a good introductory movie, there is still a lot of um, conflation of autism with cognitive impairment. And so I find still when I'm talking to teachers, clinicians, doctors, and, you know, if I've sent someone for a referral, I mean, the first thing is they can't have autism because they're too smart. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. Yeah. And so it's like, wait, cognition and autism are two different things. And so that's still really hard for those who would be formerly Asperger's or autism level one, where there might not be any intellectual um, deficits at all. In fact, there could be intellectual exceptionality. And so um, I think the first thing is I like to help um, clinicians and educators understand there's a difference between autism spectrum and a cognitive issue. So that's like the first one. And then the second big one is like, well, people on the spectrum are clumsy. Um, Mm. You know, like that's a standard thing. I was like, well, that Mm. might be true. There might be some motor difficulties, but actually there are people on the spectrum who are professional athletes. Yeah. So you can't just say, well, um, they're too smart and they're athletic. So they're Mm -hmm. disqualified from being on the spectrum because you're missing a lot of people um, on autism level one. So it's those two are the biggest ones. And then there's just some really weird ideas. I've heard um, they're too tall. They're too short. (laughs) uh, They have friends. They wanted to get married. So they can't yeah. be on the autism spectrum because they got mm. married. And it's like, where did you get this from? Mm, <laughs> these, yeah. Where did you get these ideas from? One of the biggest is eye contact. So I would love to talk yeah. about that. Yeah, While absolutely. it is a diagnostic criteria that people on the spectrum struggle with eye contact, I tell clinicians, if you are working with a family that is faith-based, especially homeschooled, we have conditioned our children to eye contact. So if you are meeting with someone and it seems like they've got okay eye contact, they may have been told a thousand times in their childhood, (laughs) look at me when I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, especially if you're working with someone in the Christian faith, that's important to know that eye contact is a really huge, important respect, um, respecting your elders. And so that is learned, but it may not be comfortable. So sometimes I Mm -hmm. ask my clients, how do you feel? about eye contact. It seems like you're making pretty good eye contact with me right now, or you're faking it because you're staring right here. How do you Mm -hmm. feel about it? And usually the answers are what will tell you. I feel terrible. Mm -hmm. I'm not focusing on what you're saying. I feel like you're looking into my soul. I'm really Mm -hmm. anxious. Kind of look, I would prefer to look at my shoes. It's like, that's the real answer. It's not how well someone's making eye contact. How do Mm -hmm. they feel about making that that eye contact? Yeah. And so true. And you know, I think one of the ones I hear a lot is, but they're so friendly. They can't have autism. They've, you know, they're so kind and loving. They love to give hugs. Well, <laughs> the sensory seekers do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They'll exactly. hug you and hug you and hug you and hug you. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, you talked a little bit about marriage and about that your husband had gotten diagnosed. And so you all started a podcast. We did. Um, called the Neurodiverse Christian Couples. And so tell us about your show about some of the things that you discuss and you know, just anything you want us to know about what you share on your podcast. Sure. So I would say at least 70% of it is marriage only. 
Um, so we um, want to just help um, people understand, first of all, if you've got a child on the spectrum, you might be more neurodivergent in your family system than you mm. think. And maybe yeah. some of those family and marriage stressors aren't just um, dealing with the child on the spectrum. It's your own differences in your own neurology. Mm-hmm. But we, um, what I love about the show is I get the opportunity you know, to talk to people like Dr. Temple Grandin or Dr. Mm-hmm. Tony Atwood or you know, someone else out there in the field where we might be talking about autism just in general, just things you need to know about autism. Um, and sometimes I might speak to pediatricians or clinicians or parents or um, other couples that are kind of in the same space. But really its focus is marriage but sometimes we'll talk about like I've had um, Doc from Soar on or um, Together mm-hmm. We Care, different places. You know, if I want right. churches like, hey, you want to know how to better serve or how to connect with these families? You know, here's some people who want to tell you about it. So it's got a lot of different facets. But the main thing is we really want to minister to um, couples who are on the spectrum themselves and helping them know they can move from surviving yeah. to thriving. But you really got to know your neurological differences and how to accommodate each other. Well, what are some of those typical challenges and things that you see when you're working with neurodiverse couples? Like, what are some of the things? What are some of the, some of the typical problems or issues that that these couples encounter? So, the biggest issue really comes when it's undiagnosed. And so, if you think about a marriage, and because um, some research I recently had published um, shared that the average age was between forty to forty nine, and then when all all of the um, participants that I um, surveyed. of them had been diagnosed over the age of 30. So they're married and with children and they don't know that they're on the spectrum. Um, They are, you know, if they've been just highly analytical, logical people and you kind of think, well, I'm, I'm analytical and I'm just less emotional and that's just the way I am. So the first thing that really is a problem um, in the marriage is communication because people on the spectrum tend to use language in a different way, right? So there's some social and pragmatic differences, understanding context, kind of reading between the lines. And um, language is more about information, transaction. What's the information I need to know to make this thing happen? And once emotions and social aspects enter into the communication, that can be a huge problem for couples. And so again, when you don't know what you don't know, mm-hmm. he's thinking, wow, like, is she bipolar? She is so emotional. And like, mm-hmm. if that's what having emotions is, like, that's crazy. And she's thinking like, he's like Spock or he's cold. He's a narcissist. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with him? Why won't he, you know, validate or support me? And when you've had a decade or so of that, um, that just really has compounded yeah. relationship issues. And so really communication skills is one of the very first things we have to work on. Yeah, so good. And, you know, what do you, through your shows, what is it that you're, that the hope that you want to convey to the to your listeners? I think one thing that just because something is difficult doesn't mean it can't be good. You know, sometimes, you know, definitely the marriage is going to be more difficult and challenging than when two neurotypicals are married together. Um, But if you love each other and you're willing to accommodate each other, um, you know, some people are of the mindset, you know, well, this person's on the spectrum, so you're just going to accommodate everything that they want to do. And that's never been my mindset. Some people are of the mindset, well, this person's neurotypical, so you need to accommodate, you know, the autistic person just needs to accommodate the neurotypical person. But really, it's about um, accommodating each other. And if you're willing to do that, it means things are going to look different. Let go of comparison because comparison Mm -hmm. is the thief of joy. Stop comparing yourself to other marriages and families. Figure out what works for you. um, Get the help and support that you need. And 
just know that this is going to be an intentional thing. This is going, there's not an arrival point. So you're going to have to keep learning and growing and maintaining your marriage. And that is different than other marriages because you've got to be, things can get so tense so quickly in Mm -hmm. a neurodivergent um, marriage because, you know, the dysregulation does not go away with adulthood. So if this person was um, a meltdowner and they still have meltdowns as a 50 year old, that's kind of scary. And if they're a shutdowner or an escape artist, Mm -hmm. that still exists when the person's 50. So we have to learn how to regulate, deescalate and learn how to resolve conflict because, Autism is lifelong. You just don't suddenly not dysregulate anymore. It's so great that you're offering that hope and and just practical ways for couples to know how to navigate. You know, marriage is tough in and of itself, but then when you add that piece in, it just adds in so many other layers to it. So I'm so glad that you're providing that resource for couples to help them um, know how to navigate these things. Um, Now, your daughter, Sydney... She's grown up now. How old is Sydney now? She is about to be 25. 25. Wow. So tell us about her today, how she's doing and and how autism impacts her now as a 25-year-old. Well, one thing that we did when she was a child, um, and, you know, Dr. Temple says, if a person on the spectrum goes into work or career in a niche that they love and enjoy, they're going to do well. And um, so we really fostered instead of telling our daughter not to organize things. She loved to find things and organize them and set them up and arrange them in her room. And when she went to college, um, thought she wanted to be a teacher, but then decided um, public history would be better for her, which that's working in museums. So um, she uh, finished college, got her master's in um, public history with a certification in museum studies. And bravely last year moved from Georgia out to the Midwest for her first museum. She calls it her first uh, grown up big girl job. Wow! Uh, Lives independently in an apartment and is working in a history museum and really loves the work that she's doing. That is amazing. I love hearing that and hearing how um, after all these years and all the trials and all the hard that, that she's now thriving and doing well. And you guys have a new book coming out this fall. So tell us about the book that you have coming out here soon. Yes. It's in phase two of editing. Um, It'll be getting its internal formatting right now. Um, I think what makes our book unique is, so I had first written a book back in 2015 and it was really my perspective, my faith journey. And it really was looking through my, the lens, my lens, my perspective. And earlier this year, Sydney said, you know, mom, I'd like you to reconsider your book, maybe rewriting with me because I'm an adult now and I would like to tell part of my own story. Mm. And your book really leaves off at middle school. It really is about all the trials and traumas of um, elementary school and kind of the harder parts. She said, I would really like to do the rest of the story kind of a thing. I was like, well, that's a good idea. So she and I started thinking about rewriting it as a mother or daughter thing. And then um, my husband said, well, you know, I mean, I've learned a lot of things and processed a lot of things. There's a lot of things I really wish I would have done different and better. I would love to write from a husband and a dad perspective. Mm, I was like, oh, that's good. Okay, well, let's do that. And then my youngest daughter, um, who's going into education, um, says, you know what? I'd like to write from a sibling perspective. So great. So I was like, oh, boy, this is going to be complicated. So um, that's kind of what we did. And I think it's one of the only ones of its kind. It is Mm faith-based because... My story, I, I tried to tell it without faith. 
and I couldn't. I'm like reading through and like mm-hmm. all the scripture and all the songs that I, I was like, I couldn't, I can't tell it right. without the faith perspective because without God, I would probably not be here today and we probably mm-hmm. certainly would not be thriving. So we kind of tell the story, um, but we also, Dan will put in his hindsight, like here's where I should have done this or I wished mm-hmm. I would have done that. Dads, husbands, you know, pay attention to your wives, lean in, give some emotional mm-hmm. support, be active. Um, we also have a devotional in there, you know, like maybe whatever one of us was struggling with, like what was the verse, you know, in some um, spiritual context. Um, Sydney tells her story from lived experience. Uh, Erica tells her story from lived experience. And then one of the things I'm most excited about is, you know, you get a lot of books out there about autism, but I decided to put at the end a, a kind of a guide. If you're looking for help in, and you're in a blended family and you have someone with autism, here's a resource. If you're a church and you want to better serve, here's three or four ministries that will help mm-hmm. you. If you're parents, here's some courses. Here are other counselors. Um, it's not about Stephanie and Dan. Let, let me put as many resources that I in that when you get done with the story and you want to take a next step, turn to the appendices and you have got a next step that you can mm-hmm. take because that's what we really want to do is yeah. we know you're overwhelmed. Just take that one next step. It's, this journey is a long journey. Just take mm-hmm. your next step. Yeah, that is such a great concept of having all those voices speaking in to the topic because everyone, as you well know, in a family with special needs, it impacts everyone differently. Everyone views things differently. And so to have all those voices, I think that's going to be a very unique perspective to bring. So tell us the name of the book, what's the title of the book, and when is the expected release date? We are hoping it is out before Christmas. Um, that is the hope. Um, it is embracing the autism spectrum and finding hope and joy in your neurodiverse family journey and its faith tip guide um, from professional and lived experience. And so you, if you want to chase it, um, chase it down, you can go to www.christianneurodiversefamilies, that's plural, .com. We just got our book site up to put a countdown on there and we're hoping it's up by Christmas, if, if it depends on the second layer of editing, all the other things are done. The cover's done, the back cover's done, the yeah. endorsements are in. Um, we'll just see how long it takes to get this next layer of editing yeah. done. Yeah, it, it's a process. Yes, I, it I is. have a book myself with my late husband mm-hmm. and it is a process. So uh, I know you're, especially the, the final phases where it gets to the real nitpicky little things, it's, uh, it's a lot. Yes, it is it a is. lot. Well, as we close out, Stephanie, can you share with us what are some of the ways that you rise above your circumstances and you find joy in your story? That is so difficult. I was thinking about that. That's the question that was lingering. I was like, where did that come from? And I, this is going to sound really cheesy and Christianese, but really, as I've, I've been reflecting back since I've had to read this book now 10 times in the last couple of weeks, really the, it was the joy of the Lord was the strength. Um, mm-hmm. Even when I was in a space of despondency, bitterness, God, where are you? Um, you haven't been with me. And as I'm reading back over the story now, in hindsight, you know, 20 years later, it's like, he never left me. Mm-hmm. He was yeah. always with me. I didn't know what mm-hmm. I needed all the time. The things I thought he was taking from me, he was preparing me for the journey mm-hmm. I'm on right now. That if he wouldn't have done some of those things, I wouldn't be in the space I'm in right now. So beautiful. And I, I love how when we really stop and look, we can see, even though we felt like we may have been alone and dealing with all these hard things that actually he's been right there with us all along. So 
Stephanie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for what you do, trying you know to bring hope to other families. And um, I look forward to your book coming out and checking that out. So thanks again so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Rising Above with Becky Davidson, created and produced by Rising Above Ministries. To learn more about us and our resources for special needs families, visit risingaboveministries.org or download our free app. If you've enjoyed listening and want to hear more, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review. You can always share it to encourage a friend. And remember, joy can be found in every story.